This is an ABC podcast. And welcome, beloved listeners, to the Little Wireless Program. Bruce Shapiro shortly will pay tribute to the late, great Todd Gitlin. Bruce Walpy will talk about Blinken, Australia and the region. And the formidable Eliza Riley is coming along to talk about Sheila's badass women of Australian history. But first, a moment, I want to read you a letter that was written, handwritten and handed to me while I was having my first coffee of the day in a local cafe. Hi, Philip, just saw you here and wanted to leave you a note. My mum and dad loved your program religiously. They lived in Iran until their death in an accident five weeks ago. My mum was a translator and writer. She translated your Late Night Live program into Farsi, for a group of friends that don't know English. Seeing you today reminded me of beautiful memories I have with them listening to your program, wishing you all the best. I immediately looked around for the author, but found he or she had left, left left the cafe. You can see why I wanted to read it. It's almost intolerably poignant. And if you are listening to the program tonight, thank you for writing it. It's a privilege to do this program, and uh, there's, there's evidence of it. And it's a privilege to talk to Bruce Shapiro. Bruce Todd Gitlin died early this month, prominent in the anti-war movement and a penetrating social critic, plus a colleague of yours. Indeed. Todd was 79 years old, uh, a colleague twice over, both at The Nation magazine, where he was a frequent contributor, um, but in particular at Columbia Journalism School. Uh, I last saw Todd a couple of months ago via Zoom on a faculty meeting, his uh, head resting against a pillow, as it often was, uh, in a cushy chair for the last two years when we would talk. Um, Todd was a... uh, extraordinarily powerful and prescient critic, both of the most reactionary forces in American life and also of factionalism and sectarianism and uh, other problems on on the American left. And he, he really you know, began life as a young adult as one of the founders of the student movement of the 1960s, in particular, Students for a Democratic Society. He uh, helped organize the very first anti-war demonstration in Washington in 1965. But by the end of the 1960s, uh, he found himself at odds or at least alienated from um, a, a... an anti-war movement and a student left that was becoming increasingly mired on the one hand in various forms of um, Marxist sectarianism um, and occasionally revolutionary violence. And Bruce, on well, the other hand, can we come back to that shortly? Todd was a, a guest on the program a few times over the years. And back in 2001, we had a chat about what he saw as the trend towards anti-intellectualism that was occurring in America. Let's listen to a little of that discussion. Yes. Todd Hofstadter in uh, Anti-Intellectualism in America, what, 1960s, I guess, refers to the three pillars of anti-intellectualism, evangelical religion, practical-minded business, and that populist political style. Do the three pillars still stand? They stand proud and firm in America, and uh, in this sense, Bush belongs to a tradition uh, of running back to his father and Reagan and Eisenhower, who, who actually made his syntax more garbled than it normally would in order to deceive, but then before him back to Warren Harding in the early part of the 20th century, who spoke of, uh, of, of a return to normalcy and, uh, and so on. No question but that what strikes many of us in America as strange is this – 
that the proportion of the population with a college education or university education is higher than ever. So there's, I think, a, a sense that the fact that we elect or even nominate uh, a, a deliberate uh, and proud know-nothing is a, is a, is a mark of, of disgrace. And I think properly should be seen that way. It was one thing for, for Warren Harding to be elected at a time when, when university graduates were probably something like uh, 3 or 4% of the population. It's another thing when graduates are something more like 25 or 30% of the population, but we have a man who cannot reason in public in the high office of the land. Now, of course, he was anticipating Trump there as well. So let's go back to Todd's disenchantment with the left, Bruce. Well, well, you know, it, it, it led to that very kind of analysis that you're describing, um, that question of why it, it, an American society, on the one hand, dedicated to humane revolutionary ideals of equality could also foster... Um, so much violence from the from the uh, violence of Jim Crow and racism to the violence of nuclear weapons to the violence of r revolutionary Marxism. And, you know, that became, as Todd stepped back a bit from the activist arena, that became his, um, his area of study. How did we end up where we did? And I think that conversation you had at the beginning of the Bush era, even Todd, I think, would not have predicted, I know Todd would not have predicted that uh, we would have a president who would make George Bush <laughs> look like a genius and look like uh, George uh, W. Bush, look like, um, you know, an academic scholar. Um, but actually, uh, Trump took the formula that, Todd was describing so well there, those pillars of, of evangelical religion and, and business and political populism leaned into the resentment side of, of, of populism, that resentment of intellectuals and education, and then fueled it with what became Todd's other obsession um, throughout his career, the role of mass media. You know, Trump really weaponize the entertainment part of mass media. And Todd thought about that a lot and talked about it. Um, you know, this is Trump, after all, essentially portrayed politics as, as, a, as a professional wrestling match, as televised wrestling, um, and took um, mass media as far as it could as a weapon of anti-intellectualism in political life. Um, this meant a lot to Todd. His great scholarly contribution uh, was, besides just a wonderful history of, of the 1960s as an era, was in understanding the relationship between mass media and politics. And his role at Columbia in our department was, our school was to lead the PhD program in mass communications. Interestingly, as he deepened over the decades his scholarship in these areas, he also never stopped engaging with activists and seeing himself as an activist. And um, while on the one hand, he argued profoundly with, over many years, with identity politics and multiculturalism, at one point he said, why does the right keep winning? Because um, the, the right, you know, marches on the White House while the left marches on English departments. <laughs> that was how he, uh, and I, I disagreed with him about some parts of that, but that was a profound critique. But he also remained deeply engaged well into his 70s with movements like the Occupy Wall Street movement, which he chronicled in a very powerful book and, you know, studied firsthand, went down, spent hour upon hour upon hour reporting on and hanging out with that now, 10 years ago, very powerful movement against corporate excesses. We, we, talked, of, we talked with Todd about that uh, on the program in 2012. But look, we've, we've got to move on to Ukraine. On the news, there was a hint that the Russians might be sending some of the troops back to base. Um, Biden and Boris Johnson say they're still hoping for a diplomatic breakthrough, but what cards does Biden have left to play, Bruce? 
Well, you know, this is interesting, and this fits in with what Todd Gitlin would have talked about as an anti-war scholar, right? Um, look, what's interesting here is that both Biden and Putin are very noisily and loudly playing what are ultimately weak hands. Um, and on one hand, while Putin militarily could roll over Ukraine in five minutes and everyone knows it, he to Putin, the international cost of sanctions, of losing the, the German uh, gas pipeline, um, and, and frankly, the domestic political cost of an occupation of Ukraine, which would not be welcomed by its citizens and which would probably result in mass civil disobedience and other forms of resistance in, in Ukraine. Um, that, that's a heavy, heavy cost for Putin to bear, even to satisfy his ideological commitment to to seeing Ukraine as part of Russia. And on the other hand, Biden um, has declared openly that he is not going to send American troops to defend Ukraine, right? We, we have sent this limited number of troops, a you know, few thousand troops into Poland to show that we care, but there are not going to be American troops fighting on Ukrainian soil. But so Bruce, the Vietnam War started in much the same way. Well, that's right. And of course, Biden, as a politician of the 1970s, is very aware of that. And his hand is weakened even further, of course, by the domestic politics of in still paying out for the fall of Afghanistan and he does not want uh, within you know six months of one another to be uh, seen as as shepherding two American foreign policy failures two collapses of American power that would feed into Republican hands but it also is simply not a picture of the United States that I think the president wants look everyone is still talking and it is striking that in this game of of chicken that's going on right now between nato and the us on the one side and and putin on the other there are these various gestures that keep being made you know today's pullback is one a couple of weeks ago um putin uh the fsb rounded up um hackers who'd been you know um who've been going after Western institutions in a sign of continued alliance there. And on the other hand, on the U.S. side, um, the number of troops sent to Poland was actually rather small, and there have been these other sort of gestures. I, th I think despite the public confrontational politics, there is a sense that it's possible to stop a Russian invasion and a cascading series of events would do, which would do damage to all parties. There's a few weeks in which the ground remains frozen, um, and it's also so you know this this could go on for a while. It's also possible that Putin um, gets what he wants by keeping a large number of troops on that border and continuing a kind of destabilization. Um, you know, this remains a high stakes game with big potential domestic costs for both the Russian and American sides of the equation. Bruce, we're about to talk to a namesake in uh, Bruce Walping from the United States Study Centre about Blinken's visit down here. How is this trip viewed from uh, the States? Uh, it is being viewed almost invisibly. <laughs> it is, it is not, it's being viewed very all. All eyes are on Ukraine. Um, you know, I think at the same time, clearly with China and Putin forging a new alliance in Washington diplomatic circles, there is a sense that these are actually an integral story that Blinken um, strengthening ties in the Pacific, not only with Australia, but with other allies, strengthening the sort of balance of power with China, dealing with South, South China Sea issues and stuff, all kind of under the cloak of on the one end Ukraine and the Olympics on the other, taking all the oxygen, that this is part of uh, the same well, frankly, sort of grand strategy by the Biden administration to remake a power dynamic and to 
contain a kind of authoritarian capitalism emanating both from China and Russia, the oligarchic capitalism of Russia, the state capitalism of, of China combined with the various kinds of nationalism that they both are playing into and the political authoritarianism. Um, we, we have it's, a it's moment, part of the same story. We have a moment left to, uh, to talk Trump. You and I have discussed the way America has been circling the toilet for some years. <laughs> I understand that the president, President Trump, actually blocked the toilets at the... Uh, the White House by trying to flush down documents. So, so Maggie Haberman of the New York Times claims in her uh, forthcoming book, um, it's one of the more entertaining details to to picture. The destruction of documents, though, the, you know, really paints a picture it's, it, of this president, the past president really acting every day kind of like a mafia boss, having all of the habits of an organized crime figure of routinely tearing up all kinds of documents covered by the Presidential Records Act, so much so, never mind the plumbers and what they had to find, um, the White House plumbers, very different from Richard Nixon's plumbers, um, but at the National Archives, they've actually taped together documents that Trump had torn up and to... to satisfy the law. I mean, it's an extraordinary picture of a secrecy-obsessed guy. More consequential than the toilet story is the other story which broke overnight here, which is uh, Trump's former accounting firm saying that they can no longer stand by the accuracy <laughs> of the Trump organization's financial statements for the last decade or so. This came in the lawsuits in New York State. This is going to have rippling effects on prosecution, on the Trump organization's ability to get loans, all sorts of things. This is a really consequential flush of the cosmic toilet, I think. That, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll pick up on that story next time we meet. Thanks, Bruce. This is LNL on RN, and as promised, from one Bruce to another, coming up, Bruce Walpain. Well, beloved listeners, as we've uh, just been hearing from Shapiro, Anthony Blinken, U.S. Secretary of State, has uh, been and gone from our shores and, of course, uh, did a dogleg to Fiji and Hawaii on his way home. So we thought it was apposite to reflect a little on what the visit represents for America's external relations in general and that country's relationship with Australia and our region and who better to chat about it than another Bruce. Bruce Walping has long-standing connections with the Democrats in Washington, in both the White House and Congress. His CV is extraordinary. He's worked on the Democratic staff over a period of 10 years, including under President Obama and Veep Biden. Uh, Bruce is based in Australia a visiting fellow at the U.S. Studies Centre. And we're lucky he's able to squeeze us in because he's about to uh, follow Blinken back to the States himself. Bruce, uh, Blinken declared the Indo-Pacific would shape the century. Does he say that to all the regions? Uh, he does say it to all the regions. And uh, the, the, his presence here over the past few days and continuing journeys uh, in the region um, at a time of crisis in Europe, uh, and, and consistent with what President Biden uh, outlined when he took office about the importance of the Indo-Pacific and especially how to engage and compete with China uh, in this century. All of that speaks to the importance of what he intended to do with the Quad in those meetings and the follow-on meetings. This was the fourth meeting of the Quad, and um, and it was President Biden who stepped it up to the leaders' level where the president, prime ministers, have met last year. Any surprises from that court meeting in Melbourne? Uh, no, there were no surprises, and I think that's the news. Uh, this was the fourth meeting, as I said, 
and it, it dealt with a um, ongoing uh, continuous agenda of items affecting the region. So first and foremost is uh, the outlook as far as China and its power and the desire to both engage and compete with it effectively. And then dealing with um, pervasive issues from the pandemic to natural disasters to cybersecurity and other things. When asked by a reporter if a confrontation with China in the Indo-Pacific was inevitable, Blinken replied, nothing is inevitable. Should we take heart from that? I think it's better than saying, yeah, I think war is coming. Uh, so I'm in favor of I'm in favor of that. And it um, it has several dimensions. There's the personal and uh, uh, diplomatic ties between two leaders who have known each other over a long period of time. Uh, but because of uh, the state of the relationship when Biden took office, it took quite a while to get into a loop of discussion, which would lead to not face-to-face because President Xi doesn't travel outside China, but where they could um, sit down together a couple of times and exchange important views. And then to, to rebuild the architecture of American uh, diplomacy in the region, which has had languished uh, over many years. And um, that's a long process. It's not fixed overnight. And so there are legitimate questions about the staying power of the United States. In the region. Is this serious? Is this going, now going to be a permanent feature on things? And uh, Blinken, by having four quad meetings at, you know every three months, and by sending uh, the highest diplomats in the department to the region, like Wendy Sherman went to Indonesia, she has been to Thailand and other countries, and speaking out consistently on important issues like Myanmar and North Korea. Yeah, I think the presence has been enhanced. I mentioned your impressive CV. Would you be kind enough to give us a hint of Blinken's? Well, he has worked with the, uh, the president for 20 years. He was um, staff director of the Foreign Relations Committee when Biden was chairman of it. And so they, they've been in touch. And uh, the people who know him know that when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of the president, the knowledge of the president. And there isn't any daylight between them. So it's a team. Uh, every, everyone knows who's boss, but it, it is absolutely a team. And so that uh, gives him a presence of confidence. Uh, when he faces um, situations which can be extremely difficult, as we saw in Afghanistan, and then extremely intense, as we've seen on the diplomacy over Ukraine. And uh, I think he is um, w- w- the best secretaries of state and president are those who have known each other for a long period of time and can work together. And I think he is in that mold. Bruce, have there been any indicators since uh, Biden has been in office of a change relationship or a changed approach towards us? No, and and I think it it's actually been it's just deeper. I mean, AUKUS, the Australia, UK, US trilateral agreement for a presence in the Indo-Pacific has emerged, and that's a deeper level of relationship uh, between uh, Australia and the United States. Uh, so the the news out of uh, the Australia US relate is that there is no new news. Even through the Trump years, uh, underneath the presidential level, there has been a consistent, steady, ongoing, deep ties between the two defense establishments, between the two intelligence establishments, between the two political establishments. There are friends, uh, caucuses of members who care about Australia in the House and Senate, and, and that keeps growing and developing. The ambassadors between the two countries have been very successful. So well, talk, talking, of, talking about yeah, ambassadors, sorry. of course, we must uh, point to the appointment, the anointment of one of, of U.S. political royalty in Carolyn Kennedy. Yes, and uh, you and I, Philip, remember her father, President John F. Kennedy. And uh, she is, um, after, well, her father murdered, of course, um, she uh, went on to, at private life, but then has entered public life in two respects. First, she honors public service, and she, and through the Kennedy School at Harvard has um, celebrated achievements in public service and those who practice it. But then she's also had a late career as a diplomat, and it was Obama who appointed her ambassador to Japan. It was very successful. She was very well received, left the country with the highest honor that you can, sort of like giving someone an AO or an AC here, which is done rarely for dignitaries. Julia Gillard got one. 
uh, for her work after the Fukushima and the nuclear disaster. But the, the point is, by sending her here, several things. She is an associate of the president. Whenever she's in the in the past months, whenever she has been in the audience of a presidential event, he always says, "Ah, there's Ambassador Kennedy," and uh, she can call him at any time. That's exactly what you want in an ambassador to be able to reach the president at a moment of importance. Secondly, given her perch in Japan, she knows the strategic landscape. She doesn't. There's no on-the-job learning here. She comes. She will come to Australia prepared with. Uh, strategic knowledge of what is unfolding in the region and why and how to help shape it. The voice, dear listeners, of Bruce Walping. Now, there's inevitably armchair critics that Blinken's timing was off, that he should have been focusing on Ukraine. I've, I've heard that, and I, I think that's um, uh, present company uh, excluded journalism chatter. Um, that, two things. That Biden could go to Asia and conduct an Asian agenda and at the same time have a discussion with uh, the Russian foreign minister Lavrov over the weekend while he's in, well, he, Blinken, is still in the, in Asia to deal with Ukraine. It shows that he can walk and chew gum and do a hell of a lot more at the same time. Bruce, it's so funny that you use that famous uh, slightly bad rise line of, of <laughs> Lyndon Johnson's because it, it had passed through what's left of my brain. So before we leave the visit, let's talk about the Pacific. Blinken's visit doesn't seem to have impressed some in China, the Global Times, well, effectively a, a Chinese Communist Party outlet, said it was clearly self-interest diplomacy and also made a painful point that it would perhaps be another 37 years before another U.S. Secretary of State visited Fiji. There's, um, I think these are very well-paid journalists uh, by the Communist Party in China, and they do a fantastic job. But the, the, the deeper part of the article is it really does get to a legitimate issue that Biden and Blinken, in fact, have spoken about. There are a lot of questions about American democracy in the wake of Trump and what the future of American democracy will be and, and how much staying power does it really have? Because it is, we've seen it become fragile in parts. And they know, the president and the secretary of state know that unless the United States is able to show resolution and continuity, that the doubts being seeded by the Chinese, in fact, will sprout. And so it is a, an issue that has to be faced and they have to engage. Uh, there's plenty of rhetoric coming out of the Global Times and Beijing, but at the heart of it is really a question of confidence in American leadership and where it's going and what it means for the peoples of this region. Bruce, before we uh, let you go, we've talked about some of this with Shapiro, but what do you see as the biggest challenges for Joe? And to what extent is Ukraine at the top of the list? Uh, any ongoing crisis for the moment, you know, it was COVID last month, it's Ukraine this month. But the, the whole issue is how strong is the American president in leading in difficult times? And where Ukraine intersects with Asia is, well, if I'm President Xi and I'm making a judgment about President Biden, and I think Biden's weak. I think he's weak at home. He's not getting his stuff through Congress. He's um, not, not as steady as uh, I knew him 10 years ago when he was vice president. And if uh, Putin, my dear friend, who I had over to open the Olympic Games last weekend, and we issued a multi-page communique, and President Putin said that they, he supports all my ambitions in Asia, and I said I support all his ambitions in Europe. And if Putin can snatch Ukraine and without a horrific price being paid, that it's worth it, well, maybe it's worth it for me to go after Taiwan. And that's why it's important for Blinken to be here and deal with Asia and also manage Ukraine at the same time. Bruce, uh, naturally we're concerned about a, uh, a Trumpian revival and at 42%, Biden's job approval is the worst of any modern president, save for the Donald. Do you fear for the midterms? Uh, yes, uh, I believe the Republicans will recapture the House. I, I, this is sort of a replay. Obama had significant Democratic majorities when he won in 2008, by uh, 2010, the House was gone in a landslide to the Republicans and control of the Senate was also gone. I think that is repeating itself in the midterms in November. So uh, that means that Biden 
will have an even weaker hand in terms of getting things through Congress. And then the issue in the Republican Party, what kind of Republican Party is he facing? Is he facing a Trumpist Republican Party that's just hell-bent on vengeance? Or is he facing a party that wants to do something substantive as well? I fear for it, though. I'm not optimistic about uh, what happens post-November. Well, talking vengeance, there's uh, already talk the House Republicans will impeach Biden. Oh, uh, I'm on record predicting that that will happen in the first half of next year. Heavens above. Now, Bruce, you said to us off air that most Americans don't want to know about Ukraine. They have their own problems. But if Putin invades, they will, of course, hold Biden responsible. Uh, they will. Uh, I've, I've looked at um, how, president, how presidents fare when crises erupt. But even in failure, the Bay of Pigs invasion by Kennedy, the taking of the hostages under Jimmy Carter, 9-11, of course, so devastating. Presidential popularity rises for a short period of time because the American people rally around their leader to show resolution and have some confidence that things will be managed. But over time, if it goes south, uh, the president goes south as well. So yes, um, uh, if Putin can, can take Ukraine, there will be a big debate in America who lost Ukraine, and that will center on President Biden. Very potent commentary from Bruce Walping. Bruce is a visiting fellow at the U.S. Study Center at Sydney Uni. And bon voyage, Bruce. Have a safe trip back home. Thank you, Philip. We'll talk again. We will indeed. Coming up, we'll meet some of the sheroes of Australian history. Take a look at Australian history books. You'll see that they're written by, by blokes, by mates of mine from Manning Clark to Mark McKenna, and they're about the exploits of blokes. And uh, that wasn't good enough for Sydney writer, director, performer, and history buff Eliza Riley. Eliza and sister Hannah set out to tell the tale of some of the forgotten women of Australian history who've inspired them. They've made a, well, they made a short web series called Sheilas in which they played the Sheroes. They were never taught about in school and who they think deserve to be printed on our money. The series was a hit and Eliza has turned it into a new book. Eliza, welcome. You've described Sheila's badass women of Australian history as a feminist revisionist history with titloads of panache. <laughs> Philip, I am so happy to be here and I am so relieved that we can say the badass word on Radio National at 10.30. <laughs> How did this happen? No, not that. How did your book happen? Um, my book happened letter after letter, word after word, and essentially the the series came out and in your brilliant words, it was a hit and the people just screamed out for more Sheilas. We wanted more badass women <laughs> of Australian history and who was I to deny them of that? And so I just, um, with <laughs> beautiful Pan McMillan, we... Um, put some brilliant women, 13 in fact, into a gorgeous book. <laughs> you delight, Philip. <laughs> okay, well, let, let's look at a, a few of them. And at yeah. random, at random, random. I, I choose Mary what? Ann Bug. Great choice, Philip. Great choice. What would you love to know about the. All uh, the dirt, the all the dirt Mary on Mary Ann, please. <laughs> Well, she rode through a lot of it on horseback and uh, <laughs> she is one of the, the few bushranging women that we have on record. There was plenty to go around, but Marianne Bugg's story has really clawed its way back from, you know, the history books are... Uh, She's the most amazing figure. She was in the 1880s in like Gloucester and in the New South Wales 
you know, Hunter region. And she had the unfortunate um, predicament of dating Captain Thunderbolt, who was a bush ranger, who was her boyfriend and the father of her children. And really, he just stole all the thunder in his, like in his name and he took all of the credit and she was really in my opinion the one to watch the neck that turned the head and um I'm so like happy to be able to tell her story in full but she was amazing well she was also a waramai woman and yes. uh, when she wasn't riding through town in men's clothes she uh, told people she was a maori yeah, so she was, yeah, she was a Waramai woman who went to uh, an orphanage, even though she had a mum and dad, but you just went to an orphanage to learn the uh, the ways of the white people, which I think is like, you know, how to make a true crime podcast or how to make a green smoothie or whatever <laughs> stupid things white people needed to teach uh, First Nations Australians. But yeah, so she would ride a stride as in how you would think you would ride a horse, not side saddle. And that was really unusual for a woman at the time. And the way that she was able to do that and also ride um, unsupervised or unchaperoned by a man throughout the towns is declaring that she was Maori, uh, which was a way that I don't know. I think it's like fantastic strategy, but it essentially let her do that because people thought that she was quote unquote on exotic as opposed to threatening, you know, like it was amazing. Her strategy, she had such, uh, she had such a, an amazing, um, brain. <laughs> now, Thunderbolt, the aforementioned bastard, famously yeah. escaped from Cockatoo Island. Yes. And Mary Ann was the one who got him out. That is true. Like, Marianne Bug's story is about all of the fun bushranging stuff that you'd expect, daring adventures on horseback and, you know, and crossfire. But really it's about a girl who is just dating the wrong guy and is in love with the wrong guy. So <laughs> he is in prison. He did the wrong thing and he calls her up and says, babe, can you get me out of prison? And so she... Um, essentially went to like the port, which is around Balmain in Sydney, and scoped out the harbour. And one night she swam in the darkness, uh, in the channels across Sydney Harbour, which is, you know, I tried to do that. Or like, as I'm from Sydney, I attempted to do it. And I just thought like, this is so dumb. I really shouldn't do this. But Marianne gave it a go in a big, heavy wool cotton skirt and a shirt and she was ca and she was swam with a big metal file in her mouth across shark-infested <laughs> waters to break out her good-for-nothing boyfriend. <laughs> I, she was described in a newspaper as a perfect Amazon. She sprung <laughs> like a tigress upon one of the police, ribboning his uniform and taunting him with cowardice for seeking her <laughs> apprehension. What a woman. She was such an intimidating figure for the police at the time and at the same time she was never sort of given the credit that I think that she deserves. She kept her boyfriend, Captain Thunderbolt, out of trouble so many times um, and she kept his gang in line. She was the only one who could read or write out of the whole crew <laughs> and she, would, she taught Captain Thunderbolt how to read and write. Well, um, talking about reading and writing, let's move on to Catherine um, Hay Thompson who is wow. now a new hero of mine because oh, she really? was such a heroic undercover journalist. Tell us what she got up to. Do you consider yourself a uh, an undercover journalist, Philip? Never, Sometimes. but I, <laughs> I grew up in close proximity to the Kew Asylum. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Well, well, that's very exciting. I've never been to the Kew Asylum, but that's where Catherine Hay Thompson did her big big undercover bust. She is amazing. This is in the 1800s where women could get locked up in an asylum for laziness, 
for novel reading, for practicing egotism. And, you know, I'm a Gen Z, so I know I'm a big practicer of egotism, as you should know, Philip. But so I'd be locked away. And Catherine actually got herself into the Q Asylum as a um, as a patient. And from there, she wrote the most amazing whistleblowing article about how women were actually treated within the, uh, the mental asylums of Melbourne and of greater Australia. And she was just such an amazing figure. Her work uh, after she actually described what happened to women in the Q Asylum, actually resulted in the first ever Royal Commission on mental health and asylum work. And it actually, um, uh, it ended up getting female attendants in to the asylum system and also to the Melbourne uh, hospital, which was just, uh, we really take it for granted now, but this woman had to, turn up to a mental asylum and say, I'm crazy, let me in, and to be able to break this story. It was well, awesome. She, well, she also went uh, undercover as a nurse yes. in, in, Melbourne, in the Melbourne Hospital and wrote about it. But this is now fabulous. She would dress up as a bloke and go to brothels. <laughs> yes, yes. She went to Little Lun, which... Uh, I think of it as like the Studio 54 of the 1800s in Melbourne. It was this district where sort of anything goes in the era where there was a massive um, uh gold mining immigration of all these very lonely men wandering around and they were just hoovered into Little Lun and all of their money was taken by these amazing uh, sex workers who were able to learn economy, learn their own finances and were really supported. So you'd think that Catherine Hay Thompson would be dressing up in drag king and going in there to sort of break the scandal about what was going on, but she didn't. She went in there and wrote about how the conditions for female sex workers needed to change and improve and for the betterment of, you know, uh, those women in that situation, which, you know, is... uh, it's such a delightful twist for me. It, well, her story is full of delightful twists, Eliza. Uh, well, she founds the, founded the National Council of Women of Victoria. Mm-hmm. And, but cop this, dear listener, she married at the age of 72 to <laughs> someone she'd been dating for 40 years. <laughs> How good is that? I have been um I've been dating my wonderful beautiful partner James for 8 years and I'm like babe I'm sorry I got to do it the way that Catherine O. Thompson does it we see you at the altar at 72 I say <laughs> Stop making me laugh I've got to ask you another question before before uh, Kathy Freeman and Ash Barty uh, there was Fanny Durack and Minna Mm-hmm. Yeah, swimming. It's <laughs> we as Australians, we all feel like that swimming or getting in the water is part of our sort of national right. But really, in 1904, that wasn't so for women. And Fanny Durack and Mina Wiley were the first ever Australian female Olympians and they absolutely uh, really, really did really well in the 1912 Stockholm Games, even though Fanny Durack, who won gold, she actually swam into the side of the swimming pool, God bless her, but she came first all the same. She's a pioneer and, like, they are amazing because even though they ca- they got gold and silver, they were not allowed to go to the Olympics initially. They were completely banned by the Olympic Committee and the Australian Women's Swimming Association and they had to self-finance. They had to crowdfund their own trip to Stockholm to the Olympics. 
I didn't realise it was uh, frowned upon for women to uh, swim in the company or even view of men. I know. It was really outrageous and that was the thing that in 1912 was the big issue. The American girls were not allowed to go to the Olympics. The the American girls had to wear a corset and a full-length skirt to swim in front of men and even then they were not allowed to swim uh, in front of the spectators at an Olympic level and that's what Fanny and Mina had to fight against. So it felt like by the time they actually fought against society standards, fought against all of the Olympic systems that were supposed to support them, getting in the pool and winning gold was easy. (laughs) Okay, well, uh, while some women took to the waters, there were others, or one at least, who took to the the skies. Uh, We all know about uh, Bert Hinckley. Tell me about Maud Rose Rubens. Can I just say your segues are just so delightful and amazing. I can't even believe you just did that. We're going to go into the skies now, Philip. So in 1920, Laws Bonney was one of the most amazing aviatrix ever and she was actually someone who was the, she was the first woman who got her commercial Uh, sorry, a private flying licence, and she took off to such distances. She was the first woman to fly from Brisbane to Melbourne in one stint on Christmas Day, you know, when, like, we all have the pressures of Christmas Day and she had the pressures of being in two places at once and her dad was in Victoria and her husband was in Brisbane and her dad said, you got to come down for Boxing Day lunch, darling, and she was like, I'll get there. And she popped in her aeroplane and flew down. And when she landed, she was already aware that she had broken a record for the longest distance that a woman had ever flown in Australia. I think it's a wonderful irony that her husband had banned her for driving and uh, then she takes to the air. Let me <laughs> Let me quote her. She also uses words beautifully. First Mm. taste of the airways was the answer to my dreams. I adored birds and there I was literally feeling like one. There and then I decided to become a pilot. She has the most beautiful way of words and her personal journals was such a gift in telling her story because, like, uh, unlike a lot of historical female figures, uh, Laws had the opportunity of using her own words. And I particularly loved her um, recollection of when she crash landed in the Pacific uh, when she was attempting to do the first ever flight from Australia to England as a woman and oh my gosh, it was just an absolute disaster when she decided to fly through the Pacific without any navigational tools, with just a a gorgeous little hat and a couple of blouses through monsoon season. It just absolutely, I, I can't imagine, like I really try to imagine what it's like to fly through monsoon season in a plane that's made of wood and canvas and a bit of metal, but I really can't. It's She's amazing. I don't think it would be as comfortable as business class and with Qantas. Now, she, <laughs> want, she wanted to join the Air Force and fight in World War II. Did they let her? Philip, I'm really sorry, mate. They didn't. They didn't. By the time World War II broke out, she was one of the most experienced flights, uh, um, yeah, flyers in the entire world. But uh, she was ready to serve for our country and they wrote her, the Army, uh, sorry, the Air Force wrote her a very polite letter saying they were not requiring female pilots at that time. And so she hung up her goggles and gloves. There's so much to her story. Did uh, did her husband ever allow her to drive a car? 
<laughs> no, her husband never allowed her to drive a car, but that did not stop her. Just like how she went behind her husband's back to learn uh, how to fly, she did exactly that to learn how to get her driver's license. And uh, there's this sort of fantastic story where she says she makes a bet with her husband and says, like, if I can drive this car away from here, can I have it? And he tossed her the keys and says, give it a try. And she describes her husband's face as she turns the ignition and just blasts out of there. <laughs> well, I found the description of her six-week solo flight around Australia and then her attempt to become the first woman to fly from Australia to England solo. Pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. How was she painted in the media? Well, look, she actually... Part of what makes her amazing is her ability to use her wealth and status to just totally fund whatever dream that she wanted to do. And that's why she's a Sheila in my eyes. But she was known before her flying career as being a socialite. And she was in the social pages, in the best dressed and the best parties. And so when she, you know, wanted to put on some goggles and fly up in the sky, it took the papers a long time to actually pivot from their idea of her. And so, oh, they just want to, I mean, they didn't really take her seriously. And I feel like that didn't stop her. She was going to do whatever she wanted to do for her own sake. But as a, as a young woman in 2022 reading about her, it is a little frustrating to hear and read all of these newspaper articles just wanting to ask her what is she going to wear on her <laughs> record-breaking flight. You know, we're just warming up and we're, we're out of time and there are so many other remarkable women. Well, of course, Eliza, the people just have to buy the bloody book, won't they? I love you, Philip. <laughs> yes, they are going to have to buy the book. There's so many women and so many adventures in here. And, like, you've asked some really clever questions that I feel like, you know, this book is about women, but it is so for this this exact purpose, being able to tell stories to one another and really chew the fat on you know, not only women, but Australia throughout from the 1880s to the 1980s. Well, Eliza, you tell these stories wonderfully. Congratulations. The book is uh, Sheila's Badass Women of Australian (laughs) History, published by a rather bemused Pan Macmillan Australia. And that's your blooming lot. On our next beloved listeners, we'll look at how state capture is affecting the health of our democracies and the enduring importance of something called stickiness. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.